So if I if I if my happiness is dependent upon something in my sphere of influence or even further, it's completely out of control. I'm screwed. So of course I'm going to be insecure. Of course I'm going to be jealous. You know. So I think that's the key thing: is making your happiness, your self esteem, not dependent upon that person loving you, fucking you, giving you money, buying you flowers, whatever it is. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello friends, Zachary Stockhill here. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Humans in Love. And I know I say this every episode, but I really have a good one for you today. My guest today is Mr. Mark Walsh. Mark is the co-creator of the Embodied Facilitator course, as well as the creator of the Embodiment Conference, which starts this week. And if you've been hearing this word embodiment a little more lately, if you've been encountering this word online or, or on YouTube videos or podcasts or whatever, you're not alone. Embodiment has been increasingly intriguing to me lately, the art of getting out of our heads more and more, getting into our bodies more and more. And I have seen through many years working one-on-one with jealousy sufferers, connecting with various people, how powerful and liberating developing a greater embodiment practice can be. And I thought there was no one better I could talk to than Mr. Mark Walsh. He has a tremendous YouTube channel with millions and millions of views on the topic of embodiment. And in today's podcast, I speak with Mark about embodiment practices, embodiment and dating and relationships, embodiment and jealousy, the coronavirus pandemic, and a whole lot more. Really fun conversation with Mark. I think you'll really enjoy it. If you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like me to continue doing this, please be sure to take 30 seconds out of your day and leave a rating and review of my show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Mr. Mark Walsh. Okay, Mark Walsh, thank you for making time for me today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, Zach. Just to let you know how I found you, I found you maybe six months ago. I just told you I'm in Bali. And as you probably know, there's a sizable Russian community in Bali. And I found myself on YouTube Googling dating Russian women, how to date Russian women. (laughs) Ah, I'm the top man for that apparently now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a sideline for me, not my main gig, but I seem to have accidentally become an expert in that. Yeah, well, you did a a wonderful video. I think it's just called Dating Russian Women. People can look it up on YouTube and I found it very helpful. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it's tremendous. I really dug that. And this kind of led me to your other stuff on embodiment. I found it all very intriguing. So yeah, that's, that's how I found your work. So you're in the UK right now, is that right? Yeah, I live in Brighton, kind of alternative capital of uh, of the UK. So uh, it's a rainy day here, so I'm slightly jealous to hear in Bali. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the rainy season is just starting here, if it makes you feel any better. Well, the, the first thing, Mark, I've, I've been asking all my guests this year, because we're living through just such an absolutely bizarre <laughs> period, uh, hopefully a once-in-a-lifetime kind of period. What is this coronavirus lockdown, pandemic, apocalypse, what has this been like for you? Like, How, how are you doing with all this? Wow, yeah, it's been a ride, hasn't it? So um, I think the first thing to say is, you know, I'm, my area is the body. 
so interested in how people relate to their bodies, stress levels, fight or flight, trauma. So I very much have seen it through that lens. And it's, it's, it's interesting, another lens I look through is a kind of existential lens in the most people in the Western world haven't really had any existential threat. Like death has been hidden away from us. And that, I think, takes something away from life. And most people just aren't really deep, good at dealing with full-on life and death stuff. And whether, you know, there are, of course, skeptics, and that's fair enough. I don't have a medical opinion. I'm not qualified. But certainly it is or has been presented as an existential threat. And people went through a grief curve is what I saw. People went through a loss curve. You know, you come across Kubler-Ross and people like that. And they may have lost their business. They may have lost the loved one. They may have just lost their, some of their freedom, you know, the ability to travel. I, I'm normally traveling around the world. And that, that stopped for months. And that had some positive effects in terms of getting to know my house and my neighbors and my community. And, my, you know, I am much more in place now. Uh, so that was interesting. But mostly what I was tracking was people's stress response. And sometimes, you know, the fight flight, like people were panic buying, you know, that was coming from this fear, you know, got to get, you know, toilet roll, something soft and soothing and reassuring, uh, the sign of civilization collapse, you know, um, and then there's a, there was a period where everyone sort of dissociated and spaced out. And that was kind of interesting from a trauma point of view, there's a kind of micro and macro trauma, I think, in it for a lot of people. Um, so yeah, some people spaced out of their bodies. Some people realized they had a body. So the breath became much more obvious and important to people when it's not taken for granted, you know? Uh, so there's some of the things I was tracking, um, throughout the process. And, you know, as I said to my colleague, I've, I've worked in war zones. I've studied martial arts for years. I've done pretty intense things around the world. And for me, it was, I realized that having the tools of embodiment, like the martial arts tools of centering and self-regulation, uh, having the tools of the trade was incredibly helpful. And I think I was able to respond much better than the average person as a result. Like we set up a helpline for doctors very quickly, for example, and we taught a whole bunch of yoga teachers to work online. And we were able to be, you know, as I said to one of my colleagues who I was in Afghanistan with, I said, uh, this is just a Tuesday for us. But for most of the world, it, it was a freak out. So it was, it was kind of interesting to be like, okay, guys, welcome to my world, you know? What about personally? Like, what, what is this? How has this impacted you personally? And you can take that question. Sure. You like, you know, one of these people was a traveling teacher. So there was a loss in that. I got used to the excitement and the novelty of traveling around the world. I mean, that's how I met all the Russian Ukrainian women for that video. <laughs> uh, teaching in Russian Ukraine, my wife in the Ukraine, she was my interpreter working in the war there. And uh, so I had a loss of that. And then there was just this sense of, you know what, it's really nice to get to know my own house and to fix some things that needed fixing. Cause you know, I was, wasn't always in and out. And I know every street in my neighborhood and I've learned my neighbor's names and I have their phone numbers and like the park next to my house and the sea three or four streets away. I know intimately now, like I'm a creature of place, which is how all of our ancestors would have been. You know, even if they were migrating, they would have known the environment they were in, in a, in a way. And then personally, the, you know, the move to online, I was already doing online work, like we did the first online conference in 2018. So I was sort of used to Zoom. So that wasn't too weird. Like we, maybe we can talk later about how much time people spend on it and advantages and disadvantages. And I know your audience are interested in relationships. So I think me and my wife went through a whole process in this. Um, and you know, at first it really brought us together, you know, shared opposition. Like I would go out to get food when it was kind of dangerous and, you know, it was 
like a man bringing home a gazelle. I'd be like, I found hand sanitizer, honey. You know, like a hero bringing up, bring, slamming the carcass down on the table. And, um, you know, we had this period of sort of intense bonding, trauma bonding, intensity bonding is a common thing. Uh, and then we just had to get used to each other, like living in the same house without being able to move out of that zone so easily, without the depressurization of, um, you know, me going to Russia for a week or whatever. Um, and so then we had a kind of difficult patch and we, we lost some of our sexual polarity uh, in the, I, I think, you know, I'm training sort of David Davis type stuff around yin and yang and polarity. This is a big element of embodiment. And that's, it's very easy to sort of merge and get into the friend zone when you're living together. And I'm, you know, not going out and doing my thing and coming back. So we then had to work through that. And I, I think we've come through it stronger. Pretty much every relationship I am aware of, couples I'm aware of, it either broke them up or brought them together. There's very few who are the same. So mm. is that interesting to you, Zach? I'm not kind of sure like what you and your audience are most interested in, in, no, in all that. A- absolutely. And it's funny you say that because one of my big p- tips for couples who really kind of want to vet each other and vet themselves to see whether they're ready to really make a go of it long term, I always say, take a trip with that person. Travel right. with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're kind yeah. of, you know, you in this different environment, you're kind of cooped up together for long periods of time. You'll really see what you're made of there. And how many stories have you heard about couples either breaking up on the road or, you know, solidifying their relationship on the road? So in a certain sense, this experience has reminded me of that. Now that that's very yes. Before we get yes. too far into the weeds here, Mark, there's a million one yeah. routes we could go down. But I think it might be worthwhile just to establish some kind of baseline of knowledge about what you do and what you're really interested in. And the main reason I wanted to talk to you is I'd be curious to hear what your impression of this is. But my impression is that the term embodiment and embodiment practices are kind of in the beginning stages of having their moment, so to speak. You keep hearing this term more and more and more, certainly more so in my life, in my experience than compared to five, certainly 10 years ago. Um, You're hearing this word more and more and more and more and more people are interested in embodiment practices, but it's kind of a vague term in a certain sense and it can mean a lot of different things to different people so what what does the term embodiment mean to you what what are you really interested in there yeah yeah okay so i agree on those assessments so it's trending and it's a little bit vague for many people you know i'm a kind of rigorous person i wrote a whole chapter in my book defining it and then when i went well hang on a minute if i want this to be well defined and the quality to rise to the top I need to put it out there. So I, I wrote a book, I have a podcast where I get the best people in the field on. I had this conference I organized. So I, I really didn't want it to become another bullshit hashtag, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I'd seen like hashtag avocado salad, hashtag embodiment. And I actually saw it in the high street the other day for the first time. It was like a health and beauty place that does massage and holistic treatments. And it had embodiment on like their TV in the window, you know? And I was like, okay, that's a sign. That's interesting. Because I mean, I've been starting to see it at yoga conferences and Buddhist festivals for a while. And I was like, okay, where's this going? Uh, So my definition, simplest one is the subjective aspect of the body. So the body as it relates to who we are and how we are. So I'll break it down because it's actually quite profound. So the body as relates to who we are as people. So our body is part of our being. It's not just a brain taxi, as one of my colleagues says. Yeah. So it's part of our being. Uh, and the subjective aspect, meaning it's the felt senses. It's all the awareness-based body arts. So we could also think of it as an umbrella term for martial arts. Most yoga, though not all yoga. Uh, meditation, mindfulness is a base. Though we could say meditation and mindfulness is awareness. Embodiment is awareness and choice. So it's, it's how we change ourselves as well as how we feel ourselves. It's how we live. Um, improv comedy, body therapy. So... 
these are ancient traditions, some of them. Some of them came about in the 60s and 70s. Some of them are very recent, like um, trauma therapies, for example, are a very recent Western invention in many ways. We should honor that. They're not ancient Eastern traditions. You know, the Buddhists didn't have trauma therapy. Uh, they had their own practices that were great, but they didn't have trauma therapy. So we can think of it as an umbrella term for everyone that's interested in these awareness-based body arts, uh, body arts that relate to awareness and to who we are as people. So to come back to that. So if someone's doing yoga, yoga, it could be exercise, it could be mindfulness, or they could actually be developing themselves through the body. And that's embodiment. So um, for me, this is trending. Actually, I'll, I'll read this out of my book. This is something I wrote a year ago that's become very prophetic. Uh, this is why embodiment is trending right now. The times necessitate it. In times of chaos, the body is an anchor. In times of mistrust and post-truth, the body is a source of wisdom. In a time of disconnection, the body is where reconnecting begins, first to ourselves, then to each other, and vitally to the planet. So that is why embodiment is popular right now. That, that's a hell of a line. In times of chaos, the body is an anchor. Could you unpack that a little? Yeah, so right now, we don't know who to trust, right? People don't trust the government, people don't trust the media, people don't trust the new age, people don't trust the traditional, you know. But where do we go? So everyone's left going, well, just even we don't have that base reality, like say from the 50s, most people would agree on a lot of stuff. And nowadays it's like, well, is COVID real? Is this real? Is, is global warming real? Is it, you know, everyone's in this state of confusion. And on top of that, because of COVID and just the general way the world's been moving, stress. And stress means we, it disconnects us from ourselves, right? We get tight, we stop feeling. So the antidote to that, of course, is to relax and start feeling again. You know, I'm organizing this huge conference at the moment, and it's really intense. So I'm basically in this situation most office workers in the Western world are in right now. Just very intense cognitive work. And I just sat for 20 minutes today, just feeling my body, letting it all digest and process. Feelings come up, feelings go. And that's the mindfulness part. And then there's, there's the awareness and the choice, the self-regulation part is, okay, how do I want to be? Like, I've got a colleague who's really pissing me off today. And it's like, do I want to rise to that? Do I want to get irritable with them? Do I want to, you know, I thought about firing them and I went, that's just reactivity. That's not a smart move right now. So, and it could be something as simple as putting my feet on the ground, letting my belly hang loose, softening my eyes, looking at you and letting me connect with a, you know, generally friendly looking human being and going, okay, you know, that's empathy. Connection is part of embodiment uh, for the relationship side of things. And then just relaxing and going, okay, how do I really want to be right now? How do I want to show up? right now and we could also look at this long term so what am i practicing what way of being am i practicing in the world that's what embodiment's all about it's, so it's a big topic many avenues i hope that gives you and the listeners a bit of an overview absolutely i'm going to ask you what i hope isn't a dumb question but i, I was wondering about this today so you've been you, you have a background in martial arts i think i read something like over 20 years in martial arts and you've been interested in related topics for a long time this is your livelihood this is your work and for example, sitting here having this conversation with me right now, mm -hmm. you're paying attention to what I'm saying. You're paying attention yes. to what you're saying. You're trying to think of responses. You're in your head somewhat. Yeah. How conscious are you of the rest of your body at this time? Because I, I, I try to, I aspire to be someone who's relatively conscious of my posture and the way I'm holding and my breath yeah, yeah, yeah. and all the rest. But I mean, how do you kind of practically live this philosophy in your, during your best moments? Okay, there's, there's two answers to all questions. One is, it depends if the question's not specific. And the second answer is practice. That's literally the only answers I give to questions. So this, this is answer number two, practice. 
So for example, I'm right now and have been throughout this interview partially aware of my body. So I'm noticing, for example, like, hey, I'm a bit stressed today and I'm a little bit tired and I hope I don't show up badly. You know, maybe I need to slow down a little bit because Zach's chilling in Bali and he's in his way, you know, he's in his zone. And I'm like, a thousand miles an hour and we're not going to connect if we're on a different speed. So that's one of the things I was tracking, for example, and working within my own body. And, and the more one practices that, the easier it becomes. Like the reason people meditate on their own with their eyes closed is because that's the easiest way. And the reason that's entirely useless is because that's not how life is. So you need a bridge with it's it's a foundation. It's useless on its own. Let me clarify. So if we then take that mindfulness into relationship, and I can go, okay, is Zach understanding? Is he paying attention? Is are we? Is someone I'm going to be friends with? Are we getting on well? And say yes to all those things. I go, okay, great, cool. So I'm tracking the relationship and I'm able to be mindful of my own body and your body while simultaneously thinking of talking points. You know, that takes some practice, right? Like someone who's a business guy who doesn't even know they have a body, they need to start with something like simple yoga just, just to feel. So on that note, maybe you could describe to me sort of the, the gist of your work um, and, and the, the effects that you're trying to induce in your clients. Um, yeah, I have a bunch more questions, but maybe we can start there. Like, what is most of your days, other than this conference schedule, like, what are most yeah, of your right days taken up with? Conference. It's the embodiment yeah. conference. Uh, generally, I'll, I train coaches, so and I train yoga teachers, and I train business people. So let, let's take an average trip to Russia. So an average trip to Russia for me would be, I spend three days training life coaches and like training them skills with the body. So it might be how to help clients self-regulate, how to be more empathic, uh, how to be more influential as a trainer, as a facilitator, you know, how to have more impact, charisma, influence. Um, that would be pretty standard kind of workshop for me. And uh, then I may be working with yoga teachers for a day and I'm helping them get yoga more off the mat. So turning yoga from more a gymnastic athletic practice into actually a way of, of dealing with life and examining oneself. Um, so some good embodied yoga principles we use, the yoga people take on. Then I might do a day's charity work with the gay community in Moscow, and we'd be looking at stress and trauma because they, you know, have a pretty rough time out there. Yeah. Um, so we, we would be working with them around their fear, around their stress, around their trauma responses, that kind of thing. And then I might have a coaching session with an oligarch who's interested in improving his emotional intelligence or improving his leadership abilities, and you know, he's super clever cognitively, but no one listens to him or everyone's scared of him. And we go, okay, why is everyone scared of you, Igor? Cause you're fucking terrifying. Let me show you what you do in your body. That's terrifying. Okay. Or, you know, you know, you know or, Hey, you know, Svetlana, why does, why does no one listen to you? Cause you have no presence. You're talking, you're head on a stick, you know, uh, or they might say, Hey Mark, why am I so stressed? Why can't I sleep at night? And I'll say, cause you're disconnected. Let's work on that. So, I mean, nobody comes to me and says they want embodiment. That's incredibly rare. Occasionally maybe a coach from Bollywood, but generally people come to me and they say, I'm stressed. I need to work on my leadership. My team's falling apart. Why is it, what's that happening? You know, these are the problems people come with. Hmm. I was thinking about something today when I was preparing for this and kind of thinking about talking to you later, just to give you a bit of preamble to this question. So I spent uh, over seven years in university, um, graduate school and different universities in Canada and India. met a lot of different people and my, my future at one point, as I determined it, was I was going to be a history professor. And, you know, love history, love academia. Um, it was a real passion of mine. It remains a real passion of mine. And at a certain point, I decided to go down a different uh, path. And if I think about it, one of the reasons I think I made that decision 
is because I was spending the vast majority of my waking hours among academics, among right. professors and grad students, people who are, you know, incredibly in their heads and not in their bodies whatsoever. Mm. Um, people who assume that their intellect is their entire reason for being in their identity. You know, people who weren't in their bodies whatsoever, many of whom neglected their bodies. And I realized that, you know, the more, you know, if you spend time with those people over the, a period of 10, 20, 30 years, you're going to become that as well. And I was someone interested in being in my body more. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. On, on the note of your work and the kind of people you work with, I was wondering, are there any things in common among the people you work with? Is there like a personality type who really gravitates toward you and a personality type who really you know, is mo- benefits most from this kind of work? Like, do you mainly work with people who are extremely intelligent, for example, or yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, a certain yeah. like uh, Myers-Briggs type or, or whatever? Well, can, I want to come to that question, but can I speak to what you just said about academia? Because I feel it is the heart of the matter. Of like, you know, I read every book in my high school library, and yet I was drug addicted and suicidal. Mm-hmm. So I was like, and I had, people said, you've got IQ in the top 0.01%. You're going to go far. You can go to any university you want, study whatever you want. And I said, if I'm so clever, why am I so miserable? Mm-hmm. And I got to university, and my professors, while they, were, they, was, they knew a lot, the internet was just getting invented, right? I'm kind of old. And I was like, yeah, but if I wanted to know stuff, I could just Google it. I don't think Google was a verb then, but, you know, I said I could, you can, um, you, yeah, you know, you Yahoo search it or whatever, you know. And um, so why would I want more information? And that's clearly not helping me or you because I wasn't really looking up to my professors as human beings. I was just going, you're smart, you know a lot, you know. And then I, I walked into an Aikido school and I realized that that was character training. And you could train your character, not just learn more about things. You could learn to be something. And the same is true in business, right? Like you can read a lot of big books on business and not know anything about doing business. It's like, you know, or in romance, you know, it's like someone could have watched all the pickup artist videos and know nothing about women, right? Like nothing. Yeah. So it's, it's possible to have all the theoretical knowledge without any practical application, let alone being based knowledge. And the word academic in England is now a synonym for irrelevant. And that's mm-hmm. kind of sad. You know, the ancient Greeks had it more integrated. You know, you go to gymnasium, there was philosophers in the gymnasium. Like Plato could kick your ass, right? He's a wrestler. So it's it's like that integration has somehow been lost uh, between the fighting arts and the intellectual arts and the embodied arts. Um, so yeah, so that's the first thing I'd say is that experience makes a lot of sense. And there's a certain time most people get to where they go, well, hang on, why would I be miserable or whatever the problem is that's coming from being disembodied? Um, and they go, there's more to life, more of my being needs to be taken into account. So academia, and we really see the excesses of that now in the sort of identity politics type stuff, is really the, that is the logical conclusion of this sort of hyper-rational, kind of purely cognitive sense. Um, in terms of who works with me, I mean, I think we all filter, and as business people, we should all niche. And I, I've learned that I only really want to work with smart people who aren't flaky, who have a sense of humor. So when I do a webinar, the first thing I do is make a dick joke. And I say, if you're offended, go away. Like this isn't for you. And if you're not robust, go away. I don't, I'm not a healer. I don't work with broken people. I work with people who are doing well, who want to learn more. And I say, listen, I can recommend you a good trauma therapist and God love you. And you know, I was in that place where I was addicted and traumatized and needed a therapist. I've been there. I don't judge it. And that's not what I provide. I provide training for robust people who have a sense of humor, who aren't easily fucking offended. And I moved pretty quick. So you better be smart. Keep up. It's one reason I like working in Israel and Russia. You know, you smart people, smart questions, tough people, the Russians. 
So it's it's like I like Russia, I like Israel, I like environments where people are smart and you can go hard. And you know, I can assume that people are. I don't try and caretake people. I'm not your mum, right? Like, like well, even your mum shouldn't be your mum if you're an adult. You know, it's it's like, come on, we're we're grown ups. If you get upset about things, that's a feeling in your body. Take responsibility for it. You know, words came out of my mouth. You started crying, please. So it's, it's this, there's bigger things in life. So I think we filter based on our personality and our style as much as what we actually offer. You know, I mean, in terms of offering, I say, you know, for example, if a life coach came to me and they were a beginner life coach and they had no body experience, I'd say come back in five years. You know, if a business person came to me and they weren't humble, I uh, recently, there's a client in Russia that wanted to pay me a thousand pounds an hour uh, to be like personal tuition. And I said, you know, you should just get, go to the workshop I'm doing publicly tomorrow, you know, and then see if you like it. And they said, no, no, I only have the best, you know, and, and they were clearly just not humble and they didn't have a learner's attitude. So I, I was like, yeah, no, thanks. I don't need the money, you know? So um, I think we all need to filter. And this is the same in relationships, right? If you, to speak to your audience, if, if you don't have standards, you're fucked, right? You need standards. You need to be able to say, hey, I date smart women, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm filtering you. I'm checking to see if, if you're someone I want in my life. Or like I had a date the other day because I had open open marriage, and the person was uh, late, and I just texted them and say, "Hey, I'll, I'll wait five minutes. I, I won't wait any longer, because this is the first date." And you know, I knew I knew if someone's five minutes late on the first date, they're ten minutes late on the second, and before they know it, they're wasting my time. Right? I was waiting in the rain, and you know, sitting there outside the pub. The pub we agreed to meet happened to be closed, and I just said, "I'll, I'll be here five minutes." And they thought I was really uptight, but I, I didn't have any malice in it. I was just like, this is my standard. I don't date people who are, who are late. Like, same with employees, right? Like, I don't want an employee who's late. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The number of people settling for less than they deserve just boggles my mind every day. You, you mentioned um, you're in an open marriage. And we can get as personal or not as you want. I told you before we started recording, one of my main interests is jealousy. And maybe we could talk <laughs> a little bit about... Uh, Jealousy and embodiment and some of sure, the sure. in marriage. Not, yeah. that on, not that only people in open relationships struggle with jealousy by any means, but I mean, do you have any thoughts on, on jealousy? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, first of all, jealousy is an, like any emotion is an action you do in your body, which you can choose to do unconsciously or consciously. So people talk about emotions like they're victims of them. You, know, you made me angry, Zach. Yep. You know, or he made me happy. It's like, dude, Think about it as an action. Emotions don't exist in the head. Emotions are bodily things. This is why if we've been angry, we get tense, right? If we're happy, we're open and radiant. Like, I can show you love. I can show you jealousy. I can show you depression. These are, this is why acting works, right? Like, this is an act because our bodies, you know, which direction is, down, is, is sadness down? Which direction is happiness up? Which direction is jealousy? That's an interesting one. But it has a shape. It has a tension pattern. Yeah, often it's tension, jealousy. Um, and I'd say that's something that some people are definitely more prone to. Um, so while we have, I think we should take somatic responsibility for our emotions. We should take responsibility for our own emotions. You, you can't make me angry. I think we should also acknowledge that we have character. And I'm predisposed to be happy and angry, for example. You'll generally see me either happy and joking or pissed off. You generally won't see me sad or scared, probably in order, sad, sometimes scared, rarely. Okay. And yeah, maybe that's my cultural conditioning. Maybe that's my personality, whatever. Other people are less likely to get angry. They're more likely to get scared. Some people are just more inclined to jealousy. Those people should not do open relationships. Right. Yeah. But it also, it doesn't solve anything big in a monogamous relationship. Some of the most jealous people I know are, uh, 
uh, jealous results are in you know monogamous marriages. But here's here's the thing: they're putting their locus of control outside themselves. They're saying my happiness is dependent upon this woman or man loving me. So if your happiness is dependent upon somebody else doing something you can't control, like fundamentally, my wife loves me, but I don't know if that's going to last forever. Most things don't. I, I can't make her love me if she stops, right? I mean, I can influence that by being a decent human being and treating her well and giving her amazing flowers and oral sex and all the rest of it, but I, I can't make her love me. So that's out of my control. That's in my sphere of influence, not sphere of control. So if, I, if, I, if my happiness is dependent upon something in my sphere of influence or even further, it's completely out of control, I'm screwed. So of course I'm going to be insecure. Of course I'm going to be jealous, you know? So I think that's the key thing is making your happiness, your self-esteem, not dependent upon that person loving you, fucking you, giving you money, buying you flowers, whatever it is, because of course you'll be jealous. And I want to acknowledge that it is, as far as I can tell, fairly character logical and cultural. Some cultures really indoctrinate like men to be jealous or women to be, you know, I had a Colombian girlfriend and she found a hair in my house that was the not, not her color. And, you know, things were literally being thrown across the room. You know, I don't even know where the hair came from. It wasn't the one I fucked, you know, but it, she just found one hair. Things were literally being thrown. I was like, whoa, an English girl would not do this shit, you know? So um, it's partly cultural, partly characterological, but ultimately it's always somatic. It's always in the body. Does that help, Zach? Is that a fresh perspective or is this? No, that, that, that's very interesting and I, I'd like to follow up. So maybe you can offer me some practical suggestions. So let's say I'm feeling jealous. Let's say I have an obsessive jealous thought about my girlfriend. Like, well, I, you know, yes. he had sex with that guy and that's driving me crazy or whatever. Like, do you have any practical yeah. suggestions for me in that moment? Sure. So first of all, the fact that you noticed that thinking was great, it means you've probably done some mindfulness. So that's the homework if you haven't. Okay. You're able to spot the thought before it becomes an embodied state. Uh, if it's too late and you've been in that, you've been caught in that thought and you're thinking about someone else's big black dick or whatever for the, you know, like 10 minutes, right? You've been caught in it. You're in that embodied state. Now we need to work with the body. Okay. So this is now the time to relax the belly, to relax the shoulders. <sighs> breathe like jealousy has a shape if you're in a different shape you can't be jealous it's like you mm. can't be sad while doing while doing jumping jacks you know you can't you can't be angry while lying on a beach getting massaged you know it's just impossible so you can't be jealous if you're not in the shape of jealousy so identify what the shape of jealousy is it will probably be a tension pattern it will probably be a holding of the breath and the stomach for example and then uh, relax that shit and, and that's easier said than done. Like anything, it takes practice, right? We're back to practice. So awareness and choice, noticing what happens. If you've got a body practice, that's a hell of a lot easier. You've got a foundation of noticing and then choosing to do something different. Hmm. It's super simple, but that's really the heart of it. Yeah, absolutely. You said a line in one of your YouTube videos that I wanted to ask you about because it, it's very succinct and I think it's very telling. And it, it, it's one of your lines that really jumped out at me. You said, our history is in our bodies. Yeah. I'd love it if you could unpack that a little and, and talk more about that. And maybe you can talk about trauma. You've used that word several times so far in our yeah. chat. But what did you mean by that? Our history is in our bodies. And just to expand yeah. on that, the next thing you said was, and what we can do in the future is in our bodies, which I found even yeah. more intriguing in some ways. Maybe you could just talk about that for a moment. Okay, so our body is the nexus in a way of the past and the future in the present. It's the, and it's the piece we can affect because it's right here, right now, right? So if you look at a child, they have very relaxed breathing, they have perfect poise and posture, the great movement, you know, up to a certain age. And then what happens is chronic tension patterns get start to get put into place. And that could be personality, it could be culture, it could be trauma patterns, they're all tension patterns. So they start to literally lean in a certain direction. 
they start to be inclined towards certain emotions, certain ways of being, certain styles of relating. For example, I have one employee who's chronically overboundaried and gets defensive the whole time. Okay, I've dated that girl too. Okay, so the same personality type. Uh, and then there's others who are chronically underboundaried, never say no. One of my students, Erica, has a course for women who are too nice. Okay, you can look that one up, Erica Chalkley. And that's, you know, she deals with women who are underboundaried and that's too nice and to, to don't have that ability to say no, which is a bodily ability. Yeah. So this historical pattern gets laid down and it could be a trauma response. Like a lot of Russians have a intergenerational trauma response just because the history is appalling, you know, Stalin, all the rest of it. So that could mean, for example, they have a sense of scarcity and that could show up around money or around food or around love, which is where the jealousy comes in. Right. If you don't feel in your body, there's enough love, a love attention, a love affection, whatever it is, of course, you're going to be jealous. Because the world's a scary place. The sense of safety is what gets smashed for people with trauma. So trauma is just a more severe version of this where someone's experience is overwhelming. That's a key detail. Um, and then their sense of safety is smashed. How they may cope with that might be to get very controlling, maybe to get very nice, maybe to get very charming or very clever. Right? Like These are all strategies for controlling the world. The problem then becomes that dictates our future. So if, if, if you're a human hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So like, like what's one of your patterns, Zach? Are you the smart guy, the clever guy, the funny guy, the nice guy? Like what's one of your patterns? Um, sometimes overconfident in my own intelligence. Uh-huh, great. I, I, so think, I think my intellect will be my way out of, out of things sometimes. Okay, right. So the smart guy, right? Yeah. So, so, so that is a pattern that has given you certain things in life. And it's, you know, you're sitting in a nice apartment doing a podcast with an interesting guy. It's obviously not a useless pattern. And if that's the only thing you can do, that's not going to help you. Like, I don't know if you've ever tried to be smart with a woman you're having an argument with. Okay, you're Absolutely. having an emotional row. With, that work, does it? You're like, Absolutely yeah, but, but logically, my darling, you're wrong. <laughs> She's just like, fuck you, right? Like that, that doesn't work in that situation because it's not a debate at university. I love history too, by the way. I'm a big fan of World War II history. Can learn a lot from history. This isn't the first plague we've ever had, you know? Absolutely. Um, it's like, come people are like, this is the worst year ever. I'm like, yeah, 1917. Look it up, bitch. Yeah, so okay. it's, it's, you know, so there's, um, our history becomes embedded as a pattern of breathing, posture, movement, literally, physically. Uh, and then it becomes a future because it, just starts to make us perceive the world differently, think differently, feel differently and relate differently. Like this is why someone will pick the same girlfriend three times. Mm. You know, I'm like, like with my friends, sometimes I'm like, really her again, you dumbass, Right. Because that's all they've got. They're an interface. And if all they've got is this, they're going to attract this. Right. And mm. all vice versa. Okay. So it's like, unless you actually work on the embodiment you are, you're going to continuously attract certain kinds of people. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that, that, that really lands. A couple of, uh, of personal questions. So I, I've been asking all my smart friends this. So I'm, I'm, you know, you mentioned like what is one of my patterns. I generally like to plan things, not to the letter, but like I like to plan out the next year of my life, the next whatever. And I had this grand vision for 2020 involving all kinds of world travel and going to places <laughs> like the UK and all this stuff. And obviously that didn't come to fruition. Um, how are you kind of planning your life or, and approaching thinking about the future these days because we're living in such a bizarre, though certainly not unprecedented, uh, historical moment? I mean, are you planning one year out? Are you, how are you kind of thinking about Okay, great question. Great question. I mean, first of all, planning is what minds do. You know, like 
I've been on silent, solitary meditation retreat for days and your mind just sits there fucking planning. Occasionally it remembers or judges, but mostly 90% of your brain activity is just planning, right? Like in, we human beings, we have a virtual reality system where we can make mistakes without consequence in our head. You know, that's, in, that's insanely good. There's a thing to be able to do. Mm. Uh, you know, a dog can't do that. A dog can't be like, oh, I'll eat that bone later and then I'll you know, give you half. You know, this is fantastic. So I think let's acknowledge planning is beautiful. Um, but it can also become a neurotic pattern of like, I can control the world. And the, the Spanish have this saying, which is, um, if you want to make a God laugh, tell him your plans. Okay, which is just a great saying because shit happens. And there's some sayings in Russian like this too. Um, the Russians tend to be more on the accepting of chaos side because Russia's full of chaos. Always has been, you know, like we have this saying in Russia and the saying is when something bad happens, my colleague from Holland or Germany says, why did this happen? We say, because fuck you, it's Russia. And at the moment, it's because fuck you, it's 2020. So you, like, like yeah. life is just one series of insulting moments, shitting on our plans. And, and I think if we don't have a sense of uh, two things, one profound acceptance, my plan doesn't work now. You know, I had a lot of plans this year. Okay. Second thing we need is responsivity and creativity. So we need the listening people who are rigid and unable to adapt are not doing well this year. So, so the basic skills you need are acceptance. Shit, my plane's late. Shit, my business is gone. Shit, my wife's stuck in another country. Whatever it is, yeah? You need that ability to let that shit go pretty quickly as opposed to suffering because it's reality is not what I want. You know, that's the source of suffering. Um, and then the second one is this ability to creatively adapt. Um, for me, you know, I have, I have plans within plans like the Benny Gesserit. But there's, there's always kind of layers of plans and backup plans. Having plan B and plan C is very helpful um and evolving plans i think if we sh if we want to be leaders our job is to keep the longest time frame possible there's two things a leader needs to do. be completely present and keep the longest vision and time frame possible hmm. if your time frame shrinks to oh what am i doing today and tomorrow that's not inspiring that's not a way to run a business that's not a way to get ahead of the competition so as leaders we do need to keep that long time frame even when there's unpredictability and uh, you know, so I just want to acknowledge it's a pain in the ass, sack. Like it's a pain in the ass right now. Like trying to run a business, uh, but there's ways around it. Like we're writing contracts with people, which are like, hey, we're going to give you ten thousand dollars for the retreat center, but if it doesn't, if there's COVID, then you give us the money back, no questions asked. And we decide two months before. So you know, like like this is what we've got a retreat in Bali planned, for example. But you guys are on lockdown, so we just took the retreat center. We're like, look, we need a new contract. This this has to be the contract, or else we can't do this. Do you want our business? So, I mean, I think that and I've seen holiday companies do that in a really cool, flexible way. So I think some of it is just learning to be more flexible and learning to deal with, with change, which is life, right? Yeah, absolutely. Assume that everything will go to shit and <laughs> you'll be okay. Yeah, like I've got a, like I'm doing this big conference right now, you should probably talk about it. It's like, I've got a plan B, you know? So it's like, I've got a deputy. So if I get like taken down in some social justice scandal or, you know, I get COVID and can't work, I've got a deputy. You know, like there's a plan B, right? And if she gets, you know, killed in a helicopter accident, okay, what's the plan C, right? There's always, this is life. Right, this is getting dark. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, as my mind goes there, you know. And too much time in Russia. Russia. <laughs> you know, the Russians do have a dark sense of humor. Once all my students were, uh, they come in, 
they came in kind of a bit late and they were cold and they'd been out outside and they were sort of shivering. And I was looking at them and said, you look like a dying Napoleonic army. And they just burst out into laughter. You know, this was their favorite joke. You know, oh, yes, our country kills armies, you know. So, um, yeah, I love that. I love that dark humor. And I think it's very important. My family are Irish and the Irish, Anglo-Irish sense of humor is the ability to go to dark places so then you don't get scared of it happening. Mm. The Jews are great at this too. My Israeli friends great at this. Yeah. So it's, you know, like that humor is underrated by intellectuals as a skill. Oh my God. One million percent agreed. Do you know the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek? Have you heard of him? Yeah, yeah. Crazy he's, guy. He's obsessed with Soviet humor. He has some very, very okay. interesting lectures on old Soviet jokes and how telling they are about the human condition under, under Stalin and, uh, the subsequent Soviet leaders, really, really interesting. That's another There's rabbit hole. There's some great hole. videos of Reagan telling Soviet jokes. Reagan got elected mm. by telling Soviet jokes uh, oh. about, you know, the difference between America and Russia. So he's, he's got it. Reagan. There's several videos of Reagan telling Soviet jokes. They're pretty good. Interesting. I'll look that up. So tell me about the Embodiment Conference, Mark. Okay. So Embodiment's what I love. This is my life's work. Generally, I'm a teacher, but a couple of years ago, I said, oh, let's get some teachers together, put it on the internet for free. There was this thing called summits I'd heard of. I was like, let's do one of those. As a friend of mine, Miles in Israel said, oh yeah, this is how you do it. And I'm kind of not very techie, but I was like, okay, Zoom, what's that? Let's see if we can make it work. And 15,000 people turn up. And I was like, well, that's cool. Because, you know, I'd never spoken to more than a thousand people before. That's the biggest auditorium I'd ever spoken to is a thousand people. And it also ended up being the biggest profit maker for us for the year, for the business. And it also ended up just loads of people saying, wow, this is so amazing. You're making this free to everyone. And we, you know, we sell the recordings and you know, the model works that way. And it seemed like a pretty good model. And I, I like challenges. I have that masculine, like mountain climbing urge, you know, like, like it makes when someone says, why did you climb Mount Everest? Because it was there. That makes total sense to me. You know, I got like a world record under my belt for various things. And I, I just went, you know, how big could we make this? Like I said to myself, this is a good thing. We want it in the world. How big could we do it? And I said to Daniela, who was the administrator for the first one, I said, if you had 10 Danielas and you trained them, how big could you do it? She's like, we can make it 10 times as big. And I was like, cool. So let's get a thousand presenters and we're going to get half a million people. Is what I said. It's a bit more than 10 times a week. And um, that's what we've done. And then we had to build a clever computer portal so people could actually find what they wanted within that and, you know, select, curate it and find the thing they love. And we had to get a team together. And now there's 50 people working on it. And, you know, top names, people like Gabor Mate, Peter Levine, Stephen Porges from Trauma, Tara Back, Jack Cornfield from Meditation, John Kabat-Zinn, and Alanis Morissette we just revealed yesterday which is cool they used to listen to oh, her as a kid, so, kind of... so yeah Lannis is actually like a really legit trauma trainer now she mm. listened to her podcast she's really very psychologically and spiritually informed really so um she's our sort of fun celebrity but i mean there's loads of trainers there there's something it's really international it's in nine languages and i said it's free for everyone the embodimentconference.org if people are interested they can um go check it out embodimentconference.org yeah, the embodimentconference.org or just Google embodiment conference or maybe even embodiment, it will come up. And it's, uh, yeah, it starts next Wednesday. I should give the dates, which is the 14th, and it goes for 12 days. And it's free, everything's free for 48 hours, or you can get the recordings and take your time digesting it. Excellent. Well, Mark Walsh, this was a real treat. I really enjoyed this. And uh, thank you so much for your time today, man. Oh, Zach, it was a pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Nice to meet you. I'm getting a bit of that calm, barley vibe in my days. Just what a little embodied hit of chill. I needed it. 
So uh, much appreciated, sir. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Humans in Love. If you'd like to learn more about my guests, my work, or you'd like to listen to back episodes of the podcast, please visit humansinlove.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Humans in Love using your podcast app of choice. If you're a fan of Humans in Love and you'd like to help keep the show going and help me spread the word, please take 30 seconds out of your day to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Before I let you go, remember that life is short, so let's make it count. And thank you, as always, for your listenership and support. I'll talk to you again very soon.